Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. This lesson was previously recorded by Michelle in front of a live audience. Father God, thank you for drawing us together as you have today. I pray that I would not get in the way of what you plan to do, but that your word would go forth and accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. It is in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Welcome. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul urged his friends and us to have the same mindset as Christ, who served others with no thought for himself. Paul also declared that Christ's name is above every other name and that a day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue declare that he is Lord of all. And that really should give us great encouragement and great hope because though we may suffer now for a little while, it will not last for a better day is coming. And as Christians, we can look forward to the blessing of being with Christ face to face. Until then, though, we do have a job to do as we shine the light of Christ into the dark world around us, irrespective of the personal cost. Paul spoke of his two friends, Timothy and Epaphroditus, whose lives were fully devoted to serving God in this way. In speaking of Epaphroditus at the end of chapter 2, Paul had said that he'd risked his very life for the sake of the gospel. Interestingly, that Greek word there that is translated risk was really used of a gambler, someone who was willing to risk everything on the toss of a dice. Paul was saying that in a Christian sense, Epaphroditus was willing to gamble everything, even his life, for the sake of the gospel. In fact, in the early days of the church, there was also a Christian group working in Carthage who called themselves the gamblers for this very reason. You see, in 252 AD, a plague broke out in that city and the non-believers were so terrified that they even refused to bury their dead. Things in the community were going from bad to worse. And so the leader of the Christian church in Carthage called all of the Christ followers in the city together, and he called them to serve others as Christ would serve. And they were the ones who then began to bury the dead and nurse the sick, especially those who had the plague. They called themselves the gamblers because they, like Epaphroditus, were willing to risk their lives in order to bring hope and healing to others. And as a result of their actions, the plague was stopped and the city of Carthage was saved. The question for us to consider is, are we so focused on heaven and our Lord that we would be willing to risk everything to help others as they did? Would we be willing to step up should the need arise? Paul knew that as the children of God, our focus is not to be on this temporary life, but rather on God's promise of eternal life in his presence. For when we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus in that way, we have a joy become available to us that is not based on our own circumstances. He begins Philippians 3 by encouraging them, saying, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. 
It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and again, and it is a safeguard for you. It's a believer's relationship with Christ that is the true source of their joy. We rejoice in the Lord. For no matter what the world throws at us, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that truth brings a joy to us that is beyond regular happiness. The hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, is one of my favorite worship songs, not only because of the words, but because of the story behind it. The man who wrote it was Horatio Spafford, who lived in Chicago in the 1860s with his wife Anna and their five children. He was a successful lawyer who invested most of their money into real estate. They were active Christians, and he was also on the council of the Presbyterian Church that they attended. But in 1870, their only son died of scarlet fever. And then in 1871, the family lost all of their property except for their home in the Great Fire of Chicago. Yet still they reached out to help those less fortunate in the city with the little that they had left. A couple of years later, in 1873, the family decided to help their friend Dwight Moody with a Christian revival meeting that he was holding in England at that time. The Spafford family planned to sail over from America together, but a last-minute business emergency kept Horatio at home. His wife and four daughters set off for England with the promise that he would follow them as soon as he could. On November 22, 1873, as they crossed the Atlantic Ocean, their ship collided with another and the vessel carrying Anna Spafford and her four daughters sank in 12 minutes. Only 81 of the 307 passengers and crew members survived this tragic shipwreck. Anna was one of those who was rescued from the water and on arriving in England, she sent her husband a telegram that simply said, Saved alone, what should I do? All their daughters had drowned. Horatio Spafford caught the next ship going to England to join his wife, and in the middle of the crossing, the captain of that ship, knowing Horatio's story, called him to the bridge to tell him that they were passing over the place where his daughter's ship had sunk. It was that night in his cabin that Horatio Spafford, in the midst of his grief, wrote the hymn, It is well with my soul, that says in part, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. In the midst of great tragedy and trial, Horatio Spafford knew his God, and he knew that no matter what Satan did to knock him to the ground, he belonged to the Lord and nothing could separate him from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Even at the worst times of life, there is a deep abiding supernatural joy in Christ that is available to all who trust in him. A Christ follower can lose all things and lose all people, but they can never lose Christ. And so even in circumstances of sadness and pain, where joy would seem impossible to others, a 
our joy in the Lord remains. Paul, like any good teacher, was willing to repeat this truth to them again and again because he knew it was really a protection for them that they hold to the truth that no matter what they lost, they could never lose Christ and there is great comfort in that. Quite suddenly, though, Paul changes his tone to warn the Philippians against false teachers, saying in verse 2, Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Paul's message had always been that a person could not put their confidence in good works. He taught that we are saved by grace alone and that our good deeds on their own are never enough to save us. He had taught that mankind's relationship with God was broken because of sin and the punishment for sin is death, meaning eternal separation from God the Father. The good news is that Christ took the penalty for our sins on himself at the cross. He suffered the punishment that should have been ours and was separated from the Father so that we would never have to be. We can be saved by trusting in Christ alone and there is nothing else that needs to be added to what Jesus has already done. However, there were false teachers who followed Paul around and their doctrine was very different to his. They maintained that Christ's sacrifice was not enough to save and that in order to please God, the law of Moses and all of the old rituals still had to be obeyed as well, including the regulation about circumcision. In fact, they were so rigid about the need for people to be circumcised before they could be accepted by the Lord that they were actually known as the circumcision group. Paul wanted his friends at Philippi to be on their guard against such false teaching, and he spoke harshly about those who held these ideas, calling them dogs and evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. To the Jewish mind of the time, there was nothing lower in all creation than a dog. So Paul was implying that these false teachers were the lowest of the low. Whether they fully knew it or not, they were being used to do evil as they drew people away from trusting in Christ alone. And he called their precious circumcision a mere mutilation of the flesh, because Paul knew that God is interested in relationship more than ritual, and that it is in Christ alone that relationship with God is made possible. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 to 29, saying, A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code, in other words, the law. Jews were people who saw themselves as being set apart, especially belonging to God. But Paul says that though the ritual of circumcision might have been an outward sign that a person was Jewish, God was not interested in outward appearances. 
He had always been interested in a person's heart being laid bare before him. God had even said as much in the Old Testament books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where he specifically told people to circumcise their hearts. That kind of openness toward God is not something that can be accomplished by man in his own strength. It is only something that can be brought about by the Holy Spirit as we yield to him. Paul goes on to say there in Philippians 3.3 that it is Christians who are truly circumcised in this way, not with an outward mark on the body, but with the inner heart change that had been talked about in the Old Testament. Our confidence is in Jesus Christ and in how he has changed us from the inside out. Paul realized that some who had not heard of him before might think him a Gentile because of what he'd said, and that they would brush off his comments, believing that he didn't know what it really meant to be Jewish. And so it was very important to him to clarify his qualifications in verse 4. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Those in the circumcision party may have been proud of their Jewish heritage, but Paul was more qualified than most. According to the law, he had been circumcised on the eighth day after being born. Not only had he been born a Jew, but he was also from the tribe of Benjamin, which made him one of Israel's elite. Benjamin had been the only one of the patriarchs to have the honor of actually being born in the promised land. The first king of Israel as well, Saul, had come from the tribe of Benjamin, so Paul belonged to the nobility of Israel. When he said that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, it meant that he was not only born to parents who were both Jewish, but that he also spoke Hebrew as his home language. More than that, he had been a Pharisee, a group that was known for their strict obedience to the law of Moses. His whole life had been focused on legalistic righteousness before he had believed in Christ. He had been so passionate about Moses and the ritualistic law that Paul had even been one of the Jewish religious leaders, chief persecutors of the early Christians. As a Jew, He'd enjoyed many benefits, and he had had great success as one of Judaism's rising stars. And yet now he went on to say in verse 7, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. 
The things Paul had once valued so much now meant nothing to him, for those earthly benefits could not compare to the eternal blessings he'd come to know in Christ his Lord. Paul had been willing to walk away from his old life and all the position and honor that had come with it. Seeing those things as rubbish in comparison to all that Christ offered. With all of Paul's previous self righteousness, he knew that he had come to nothing, and it was only when he had entrusted his life to Jesus that he had received true righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. When Paul said in verse 10 that he wanted to know Christ more and more, he used a very intimate form of that word to know, which helps us to realize that Paul didn't just want to know about Jesus, he wanted to know him as an intimate and treasured friend. And in order to know Christ better, Paul was willing to suffer as Jesus had, even becoming like Christ in his death, because Paul knew that it's often through the most difficult times of life that the Lord reveals himself to us more clearly. It is in our greatest need that we often feel the power of the Holy Spirit more intensely as he strengthens us. Paul knew that life like this with the Lord is an ongoing process that is only brought to completion at the resurrection and he knew that he had not fully become all that Christ intended him to be yet, saying in verse 12, Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. As Christians, we have a high call to be like Christ, and yet we are somewhat limited this side of heaven. John put it this way in his letter known as 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, saying, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he, Christ, is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And anyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You see, it's only when Christ returns that we, as the children of God, will be fully like him. But until that day when we stand in his presence, we undertake the ongoing work of purification, seeking to be more and more like Jesus as we represent him to the world. Paul knew that he had not reached his goal yet, but he planned to keep going. Jesus had taken hold of his life for a reason, and Paul wanted to see Christ's plans for him fulfilled. To do that successfully, he knew that he couldn't dwell on the past. He couldn't focus on all of his previous achievements under the law as a Jew. He had to forget all of that and keep moving forward as if he were an athlete competing for a prize. 
And in verse 15, Paul presumes that those who are mature in the faith, who had a deep relationship with the Lord, would agree that although we're saved by faith alone, we're saved for a purpose, to represent the Lord well in the way that we live. There is an ongoing forward movement in the Christian life as we persevere, straining toward that which is ahead. We press on to the goal of finally hearing the accolade from the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. In saying that we're willing to participate in Christ's sufferings and even in his death, should that become necessary, Paul realized that there would be those younger in the faith who would find his words very difficult to accept, but he was confident that the Lord would bring them to the place of being willing to say yes to God's will for them, whatever that might be. He wanted them to follow his example of faithful endurance, though, no matter what lay ahead. In verse 17, he says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. When I was growing up, my parents did not follow the Lord, and the one thing I remember so clearly about my father was that he frequently used to advise my brother, sister, and me to do as I say, not as I do. Unfortunately, our actions speak louder than our words, and we have no choice in being an example of some kind to those around us. The only choice we do have is what kind of example will that be? Paul wanted them to follow his example and live as he had. And that really is a bold statement because it's rare for someone to know that the life they're living is worthy of copying. But Paul did. You see, he was modeling his own life on Christ's, and so he was able to suggest that others do the same. In fact, when Paul wrote a different letter to the church at Corinth, he urged them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, to follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now, Paul was not saying that he was perfect, for he knew that that was still something he was striving for, but he did consistently show what authentic Christ-like living looks like, and we can do that too. When we get it wrong, as we sometimes will, we can then model what it is to ask for forgiveness from the Lord and others as we repent and move forward. You see, we are to model pursuit and perseverance, not perfection. Paul was dedicated to becoming more and more like Christ in his actions. He knew that there were other mature Christians who also lived in the way that he did, and he encouraged the Philippians to model their lives after people like that. 
for not all in the church acted in that way. And Paul went on to speak of those who were in fact living as enemies of the cross of Christ. We can't be sure exactly who he was referring to here, but we can be sure of their sin. They were ruled by their worldly needs and their immoral desires. Their God was their stomach and their glory was in their shame. In other words, they would happily brag of their immorality, seeing nothing wrong with it. Paul says that their minds were set on earthly things. They weren't concerned with heaven. Paul may have been talking here about another group in the church at the time called the Gnostics. Their name came from the Greek word meaning to know, and essentially they taught that in order to know the grace of God, you really had to know the depths of sin. And they taught that it didn't matter what you did with your body because you could always be forgiven. Their twisted truth was that as they were now free from the Old Testament law, they could do as they liked. They turned Christian liberty into a license to sin. Paul wanted Christ followers everywhere to understand that our citizenship is now in heaven. And though we live in this world, we're not of it, and we shouldn't live as people of the world do. We eagerly await Christ's return, because then everything will finally be set right again by his power, and we will be changed. Our perishable bodies will become imperishable and we'll finally be like him. Until then, though, we are to follow Christ's example as Paul did. And forgetting our past, we push forward to the finish line, mindful about how we live, depending on the power of the Holy Spirit as we ultimately point others to the example of Christ alone. Let's pray. Father God, I do pray that you would help us to forget our past and push forward to that finish line, to hearing you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, help us to be mindful about how we live and to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit as we ultimately point others to the example of Christ alone. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.